So he was born a preacher's kid. Some of us know the pluses and minuses of being a PK. Born, too bad, 11 years too late for the great disappointment. Born in a little village in Wisconsin by the river. Name of the village, Baraboo. Born January 12, 1855. Be a great place to call home, wouldn't it? I'm from Baraboo. After he was born, by the way, the mighty Ringling Brothers Circus came to town. That became their headquarters. But you can't stay in a circus all your life. He finally moved away. His name, Ellet Joseph Wagner, the son of Joseph and Mariette Wagner, his dad, a printer turned preacher, rather influential writer in this community of the early pioneers. When Ellet finally said, I'm out of here, he ended up in Battle Creek, Michigan. You've heard of that place? Ended up in the college there from 1874 to 1877. Then he was off to the University of Michigan, good school for medical training. Ends up in the Long Island College Hospital in Brooklyn, New York, where he received his medical degree, 1878. Comes back as a staff physician at Battle Creek Sanitarium. Then in March 1879, the young physician marries the lovely Jesse Moser. And they head out to California where he joins the medical team at the Rural Health Retreat. Eventually, it would become St. Helena Sanitarium. So all of that is pre preamble because it was on a rainy and dismal afternoon in October 1882 that the young doc was seated in this large tent for a camp meeting. The damp chill outside captured the emotions inside. 27-year-old... Ellet. I'll let him describe what happened next. Put his words on the screen. I was sitting a little apart from the body of the congregation in the large tent at camp meeting in Healdsburg one gloomy Sabbath afternoon. All that has remained with me was what I saw. Suddenly a light shone round me, and the tent was more brilliantly lighted than if the noonday sun had been shining. And I saw Christ hanging on the cross, crucified for me. In that moment, I had my first positive knowledge, which came like an overwhelming flood that God loved me and that Christ died for me. God and I were the only beings I was conscious of in the universe. I knew then by actual sight God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, and I was the whole world with its sin. I am sure that Paul's experience on the way to Damascus was no more real than mine." End quote. And in that split-second radical paradigm shift, this young physician, to the depths of his being, experiences and conversion that would make a lasting, deep impression in his life. What happened next? His words again on the screen, I knew at that moment that in the Bible I should find the message of God's love for individual sinners, and I resolved that the rest of my life should be devoted to finding it there and making it plain to others. The light that shone upon me that day from the cross of Christ has been my guide in all my Bible study. Wherever I have turned in the sacred book, I have found Christ set forth as the power of God to the salvation of individuals, and I have never found anything else." End quote. Wow. You know, maybe, maybe it's you. Maybe you're the one here today 
that heaven is about to break into with that explosive paradigm shift. You may be younger than 27. 27 may be an age of innocence for you. You're long past. But you know what? A study of God's closest friends reveals that whether you're Samuel at the age of seven or Moses at the age of 80, when God is ready to break into your life like that, He will. He will explode into you. You're not too young. You are not too old. That's what happened to Ellet Joseph Wagner. How did he put it? I resolved that the rest of my life should be devoted to making the message of God's love plain to others. And so he quits medicine. He, go, he goes and joins his daddy who is a, at the, this newly founded Pacific Press. His dad's the editor of the new magazine, Signs of the Times. And just as he is joining, as fate would have it, another young man joins the editorial team. His name, Alonzo Trevier Jones. And so it was that these two young men, with hearts captured by Christ and His gospel, joined forces as writers and young preachers, becoming, as Woody Whitten puts it, this dynamic duet, legendary in Seventh-day Adventist history as Jones and Wagner... In fact, eventually Jones and Wagner, or Wagner and Jones, became co-editors of the Signs of the Times magazine. But what catapulted them both onto the stage of history are these two realities. Reality number one, they happened to be, both of them, at the Minneapolis General Conference session of 1888, October, November of 1888. And reality number two, the personal support they enjoyed and advocacy of 60-year-old Ellen White, who also was in attendance at that conference. In fact, since the year before 1887, as George Knight puts it, Ellen White, sensing that the young men from the West had a salvational message that the denomination desperately needed to hear, had been supporting their right to be publicly heard. But the problem with the boys out West was they were a little brash. They made a mistake, and she later told them, you, sh you shouldn't have done it. But they took on the old guard back in Battle Creek by publishing a theological challenge in the signs of the times, and that just did not sit well. And so when the boys from California show up, the old guard is locked, cocked, and ready to go. Wagner, in fact, is invited to share a few lectures on this Christ and His righteousness. Pushback, strong pushback. By the way, Wagner's 33, Jones is 38. How, are, how old are the old guard? Well, let's talk about Uriah Smith, longtime editor of the Review and Herald. He is 56 years old. Let's talk about G.I. Butler, president of the General Conference. He is 51 years old. They are ready for these whippersnappers. And when Wagner gets up to start, they say, hey, let's duel it out. Let's, let's have a debate. That was back in the huge debating times of American history. And Wagner and Jones said, we didn't come here to debate. Forget it. So one of the ministers got up. He said, all right, we'll take you on without you. And he got up and preached a sermon against the position of Wagner and Jones. The next evening, Wagner decides we've got to do something. So Wagner gets up, steps behind the pulpit, and begins to read a lengthy passage of Scripture revealing the truth and the soundness of his emphasis on Jesus. Everybody saying, get over the Scripture. Get to the debate. But when he's through the Scripture, he walks right down and sits on the front row. 
And his friend A.T. Jones jumps up, and he makes his way to the pulpit, and he reads a lengthy scripture supporting the truth of Christ and his righteousness. Sixteen times those young men alternated back and forth through the evening. Sixteen times Mervyn Maxwell wrote, the meeting then was closed with prayer. That was all, but the impression was profound. Just because you're young doesn't mean you don't have something that needs to be heard. And it can be in this book right here. A few years later, Ellen, looking back on this Minneapolis conference, wrote this heartbreaking assessment. I have been instructed by God that the terrible experience at the Minneapolis conference is one of the saddest chapters in the history of the believers in present truth." End quote. Too bad. Too bad. Was Minneapolis a net loss for the church? In my humble conviction, it was not. As soon as those sessions were over, the three of them, Ellen White, Wagner, and Jones, began to crisscross the nation, camp meeting to camp meeting, campus to campus, congregation to congregation. And every place they went, they uplifted the Savior, talking about the, the, the gift of salvation through faith in His righteousness. And for a people that had, been, that had been weaned over the last few years on the preaching of the law, it was the most refreshing, refreshing sound. Ellen White later described the people as dry as the hills of Geboa until this fresh spring burst forth. What was Ellen White's conviction about Wagner's message? I'll put her words on the screen. She, she wrote, I, I have had the question asked, what do you think of this light that these men are presenting? She responds, why? I have been presenting it to you for the last 45 years, the matchless charms of Christ. This is what I've been trying to present before your minds. When Brother Wagner brought out these ideas in Minneapolis, it was the first clear teaching on the subject from any human lips I had heard, accepting the conversations between myself and my husband. Every fiber of my heart said, Amen. Was Ellen White impacted by the message of Jones and Wagner? Woody Whitten, in his signed article in the new, brand new Ellen White Encyclopedia. These are Woody's words on the screen there. In the face of the stiff opposition to Wagner's emphases, Ellen White gave strong personal support to his and Jones' basic theological thrust. Her outspoken affirmations of Jones and Wagner's Christ and grace-centered emphasis would be sustained until at least 1896. The Christ-centered focus of Jones and Wagner was the inspiration for the most concerted emphasis that Ellen White would ever make on justification by faith, how God can look at a sinner like me, sinner though I am, and declare me righteous. Justification by faith in the imputed, credited to our account, merits of Christ. When all that she ever wrote on justification by faith from 1844 to 1902 is surveyed. Listen to this. Roughly 45% of the entire mass was written between late 1888 and late 1892. Did it impact her? It did. Soon after, Ellen White left for Australia, 1891, and the 37-year-old Dr. Wagner was called 
to be a missionary to England, where he became the editor of a brand new magazine called Present Truth. And I need to insert this right here because I just finished reading 45 of his editorials in the Present Truth magazine, no longer in print. Some gracious soul that I do not know sent me the compilation, Living by Faith, and it, is, it has been the most refreshing depiction of the gospel I have ever read. But sadly, and I debated, hey, listen, let's, maybe, let's, just, put the, let's just end it right there. I mean, what's wrong? We got, we got the history that we need. Sadly, though, it wouldn't be fair to history if we didn't continue. Wagner was unable to sustain his Christ-centered focus on the gospel. While in England for 11 years as a missionary, seven times he crossed the pond, as the English call it, the Atlantic, to attend a general conference session. He was rather popular now and accepted. He was invited seven times to be the teacher, the preacher, for that general conference session. But in those heady days, he became beguiled by the pantheistic teachings, the pagan philosophy of Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, the famous Kellogg name up there in Battle Creek, pantheism. God's everywhere. He's in everything. His older friend Ellen warned him of where such notions would lead. In fact, on October 3, 1903, she not so subtly suggested that such, and these are her words, fanciful views would result in apostasy, spiritualism, and free loveism. End quote. Three days later, she warned him, Satan hopes to wean your affections from your wife and to fix them upon another woman. In fact, in 1903, get this, she wrote to P.T. McGann and E.A. Sutherland advising them to take Wagner onto the faculty of, as she calls it, the school at Berrien Springs. I wonder who that was. The fledgling Emmanuel Missionary College, can you take the young man onto your faculty? Why? As she wrote to these two leaders, so that you might help him to place his feet on solid ground, even the rock of ages, end quote. But it was all to no avail. Within a year, Wagner would divorce his wife and remarry another woman. He separated from denominational employment in 1904, and the last 10 years of his life are spent in relative obscurity. He died at the age of 61. As Woody Wooden puts it, the once forceful messenger of righteousness by faith in the matchless charms of Christ, shorn of his power and influence. In the words of King David, how the mighty are fallen. How sad. How sad. But we must not compound his crippling mistake by discrediting his message on the account of his tragic meltdown. That would be a double, a double loss. As children of the pioneers, you and I, for us there is embedded in Wagner's message the hope of Christ for this end-time generation. What Jesus is trying to tell us, open your Bible. He'll be dead in less than 24 hours. The Gospel of John. Open your Bible to John chapter 15, the upper room. John chapter 15. Jesus is making a significant point, and we've got to get it. John chapter 15. Thursday night, he'll be dead tomorrow afternoon. That's the context historically. Speaking in the upper room, John chapter 15, verse 26. I'm in the NIV. 
when the advocate comes. Now, the old King James says when the comforter comes. The new King James says when the helper comes. The old NIV says when the counselor comes. This is the new NIV. When the parakletos, the one called to our side, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify. What are those last two words? Call them out to me. He will testify what? About me. Drop down to verse 14 in chapter 16. He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. When the Spirit comes, he will testify of me. When the Spirit comes, he will glorify me. When the Holy Spirit is poured out, it is Christ Jesus who is exalted. You know, there's some communities of Christians today, they get so excited and, and, and a stir over the notion of the Holy Spirit that, that that's all they can talk about, the tongues of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit. No, 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 Jesus says. That's not the way it works at all. When the Spirit is poured out, He talks about me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Christ will be the theme. Christ will be the conversation. Christ will be the focus if the Spirit's poured out. Which is why it's no surprise, really, that Ellen White connects Jones and Wagner's exalting of the matchless charms of Christ. She connects it with the final outpouring of the Holy Spirit that the Bible calls the latter rain. Have you heard those two words? The latter rain. The, the New Testament begins with the early rain, day of Pentecost. Revelation says it ends with the latter rain, the final. The whole earth will be set ablaze with the glory of Christ just before he returns. Ellen White actually identifies the beginning of the latter rain or the loud cry in the preaching of Jones and Wagner. But cut off. Here's her clear summation of the message of Jones and Wagner. Let me put it on the screen for you. This is from a little book called Testimonies to Ministers. The Lord, I love this, the Lord in His great mercy, it was mercy, sent a most precious, I love that too, a most precious, precious message to His people through elders Wagner and Jones. This message was to bring more prominently before the world. By the way, these are all in your study guide. There are no filling in the blanks, but you have this quotation. And I wish you would circle the words. Hit the pause button right there. Circle the words before the world. This was, no this, this was no message intended for a backwater fledgling community. Are you kidding? This message was intended, is intended for the entire planet. Still is. How's this line go? This message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Keep reading. It presented justification through faith and the surety. This being declared righteous when I'm a sinner. Acquitted, forgiven. All your sins gone. It presented justification through faith and the surety. That would be Christ. It invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. You can't have the grace of God separated from the law of God. Law and grace are always together. Anybody who says, I'm only under the grace of Christ and I'm not into the law of Christ, illogical, impossible. It cannot be done. They always go together. Keep reading. Many had lost sight of Jesus. They needed to have their eyes directed to his divine person, his merits, his changeless love for the human family. All power is given into his hands that he may dispense rich gifts unto men and women, imparting the priceless gift of his own righteousness to the helpless human agent. 
One last line. This is the message that God commanded to be given. There it is again, to the world. This isn't for you. This is for every man, woman, and child on this planet. It is the third angel's message, which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of his spirit in large measure. There it is, end quote. There's that latter rain that comes. Revelation 18:1. the whole earth will be lightened with the glory of Christ. There it is. This message is locked into the outpouring of the mighty third person of the Godhead, the latter rain. Hey, by the way, come on. That's what happened in the beginning. In the early rain, day of Pentecost, what happens? The place explodes in fire. These brand-new Christians, now infilled with the Holy Spirit, fan out over Jerusalem. What are they filled with? The Spirit, they are filled with Christ himself, filled with Christ. If it was, if it was that way in the beginning, don't you suppose the latter rain, it'll be that way again? Spirit poured out, filled. With Christ. So Jesus promised that night in the upper room just before his death, when the Spirit comes, he will testify of me. Which means, by the way, listen up. When we band, when, when we band together and we plead for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon this campus, upon this congregation, upon this community, when we cry out to God, oh, God, oh, I love that song, let it rain, let it rain. When we sing and, that, if, and we mean the prayer, let it rain, well, what are we asking for? We're asking, oh, God, fill me with Christ himself. When I pray, when I plead for the Spirit, I pray for the Savior. When you plead for the Spirit, you pray for the Savior. Let it rain, we sang a, a moment ago. And by the way, that precisely, <laughs> that precisely is what happens. May I tell you a story? This, this is fascinating. Battle Creek College, all right, our academic intellectual mother, as it were. Listen to this. Less than two months after Minneapolis, less than two months, the young preacher, A.T. Jones and Ellen White, come marching onto campus. Look out. Because the old guard, still strong resistance, push back, push back. We're not, we're not going this way, Okay. We'll go to the young. It's a brilliant strategy always by the church, by the way. Go to the young. And they did. They said, let's have a week of prayer. They had it back in December. December 15, scheduled to go through December 22. That would be one week, like we do here, only we do it earlier in the fall. Only they had this week of prayer, and it went on for an entire month. <laughs> what was happening on the campus of our mother? I'll, I'll put Ellen White's words on the screen. She later described it this way. Meetings were held in the college, which were intensely interesting. By the way, they were not only intensely interesting, interesting to the young, they were interesting to this, this uh, 61 now, year old. Ellen, what effect will the exalting of Christ have on this school? The meetings were intensely interesting. Keep reading. The Spirit of the Lord wrought upon hearts, and there was a precious work done in the conversion of souls. God saved, God saved, God saved. There has been, she writes, no excitement felt or manifested. This was not some sort of emotional hype, 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 hype. No, no excitement felt or manifested. The work, I like this, the work has been accomplished by the deep movings of the Spirit of God, and students and faculty have moved intelligently and in faith. 
He, Jesus, who had been to them as a root out of a dry ground without former comeliness. She's quoting Isaiah 53. I mean, who needs this? I mean, he's 599. He's no big treasure. 599, who needs him? He suddenly became for that campus the chiefest among 10,000 and the one altogether lovely, end quote. A quiet revival breaks out, and hold on, because even the president of Battle Creek College is drawn into the revival. W.W. Prescott. I'm going to read to you now from her private diary. She didn't write this for anybody but herself. Her words on the screen. Thursday at 5 p.m., I spoke to the college students. The Lord gave me the word which seemed to reach hearts. Professor Prescott, that's the college president, arose and attempted to speak. So you, you, you can picture, we have a week of prayer here. President gets up after the week of prayer presenter has presented, and he said, I'm going to say something. And he attempts to speak, but his heart was too full. There he stood for five minutes in complete silence, weeping. Can you imagine? You, you, you could hear a pin drop. Nobody moves. Five minutes. When he did speak, he said, I am glad I am a Christian. And he made very pointed remarks. His heart seemed to be broken by the Spirit of the Lord. I invited those who had not... Ex- we got to have an altar call. Thank you, Mr. President. Let's have an altar call. And that's exactly what happens. I invited those who had not accepted the truth, those who had not, had not the evidence of their acceptance with God that comes when you embrace the gospel of Jesus. I invited them to come forward, and it seemed that the whole company were on the move. Everybody, it seems, came forward." End quote. What if we began to pray for the outpouring of the Spirit of Jesus on this campus? 127 years later, what if we joined together and pleaded for the outpouring of the Spirit of Jesus upon us? But this time, instead of praying for, we pray through. That's Melody Mason, this delightful, this, this powerful book of hers, Daring to Ask for More. We've got a bunch of girl groups that are using that book. She says, this is her point. Uh, to me, it's, 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 it's brilliant. She says, you know what we do? We pray for. We're experts at praying for. I pray for my food. I pray for the weather. I pray for my friends. I pray for winter to stop. I pray for good grades. I pray for money. I pray for my family. We pray for. She says, we're, ec- we're experts at praying for, but what would happen if we started praying through? What does it mean to pray through? It means you pray until you have an answer. You don't stop after one prayer. You stay on that. However long it takes, I am not, I will not let you go, is what Jacob said. I will not let you go unless you bless me. You pray through. What would happen if we prayed through around here? Oh, Jesus, pour out your Spirit upon us and fill us with you. And we keep praying and praying until the answer comes. What if we join forces in united praying? So it's not just one here and one there, but it, we, we banded together to pray. Is there any advantage to banding together to pray? I found one line. It's never repeated anywhere in the corpus of her writings. One line. I'll put it on the screen for you. This is something else. 
The promise, she's talking about Matthew 18, verses 19 and 20, where Jesus says, you know, if two or three, if two of you agree about anything on earth, I will do it. Where two or three of you are gathered together, that's the verse. She says, this promise is made on condition that the united prayers of the church are offered. And in answer to these prayers, there may be expected a power greater. Would you circle those three words? A power greater than that which comes in answer to private prayer. The power given will be proportionate to the unity of the members and their love for God and for one another. A power greater. Ah, come on. That doesn't make sense. That's counterintuitive. Why not just one prayer? A few years ago, John Polkinghorne, the great English physicist, was here. Clark Rowland was here in first service. I said, Clark, you remember inviting him? John Polkinghorne, Sir John Polkinghorne, knighted by the queen. So he's here. He happens to be an Anglican clergyman as well. So he's a brilliant uh, physicist plus an Anglican uh, a clergyman. He's having a Q&A with the students. I was there. I interviewed him twice on Sabbath morning right here. And somebody asked a question, Dr. Polkinghorne, do you think group prayer is more powerful than individual prayer? I mean, the book of Acts, they're always getting together to pray. Do, what do you think about that? And this brilliant mind, I watched him. He just, he just kind of leaned back. And he said, hmm. He said, this is, this is how I think it works. He said, you can take a single wave of light, a little ray of light, a little wave. He said, a little wave of light, bing, it bounces off. It obviously bounces off because I can see what's there. But it can't do anything, just that one little ray. But he says, we've learned in science that if you take one little ray of light and you couple it with another little ray of light, you tie them together, as it were, and you take another and 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 another, you end up with what's called laser. And when you have laser light rays all banded together and they're focused on one object, it doesn't matter the object, they can drill straight through, blasting open whatever stands in their way. He says, that's how I think it works with group prayer. And I said, that makes sense to me. A hundred years before he said that, she said, there is a power greater when we unite in prayer than when we pray alone. So what would happen if we unite in prayer here on this daughter campus of Battle Creek College? Of course, we still have to take classes. Come on, you still, have to, you still have to write papers. You still have to teach the courses. You still have to administer the university. I understand that. But what, what would happen if through it all, we were praying through it all? We just kept praying through. Life goes on, but you can still pray. What would happen if we banded together one little light ray and another and another and another until a mighty laser is created on this campus? Wow. What did Jesus say? When the Spirit of truth comes, He will testify of me. That's what would happen around here. He would be the theme of our conversations. We'd be, we'd be huddling together around the Bible. We'd be gathering together in prayer and say, Oh, Jesus, more, more, more of you, please. The, the matchless charms of Jesus would capture, would capture our hearts. Wow. We'd be finding people we'd, who we know who don't know Jesus, and we'd be running to them and say, hey, you need, to, you need to hear about Jesus. Suddenly, our testimony would become vibrant and fresh because we know Jesus. We know Jesus today, not 10 years ago. Today, we know Jesus. 
I tell you what, student missionaries will be signing up right and left. Send me anywhere on the planet you go because I'm going to tell wherever I go about the Lord Jesus. You can hold them back. Racial insensitivities would be gone on this campus. The walls would come down on this campus. And the modus operandi, and I know how it works because this is the way I work. I got some smarts up here. I know how to handle this. You know what? Why is it that when we're faced with horrendous odds and massive challenges, privately or collectively, that we have a hard time saying, hey, let's talk about this to Jesus? Is it too simplistic? Nobody's saying you put your brain in neutral. It's just while we work, we pray. We unite in prayer. What would happen if Jesus were the de facto go-to default whenever we faced a challenge here in my heart, in your life? Hmm. What if the daughter of Battle Creek College asked God to pour out the Spirit of Jesus upon us and we kept asking and kept asking until He answered? What if? What if? Take out your Connect card, please. It's tucked away in your worship bulletin. I'd like to give you a chance to respond to this last chapter in the stories of the pioneers. Guests, we're delighted to have you. We have a bunch of you here today. Glad you are. Our ushers are getting ready to receive these right now. If you wouldn't mind, guests, you just do put your name there, email address, so we can be back in touch with you if you so need. On the back of the car, we do this every Sabbath. Here, here are some suggested next steps. Box number one, I want my heart to be drawn to the uplifted Savior for the rest of my life. When I read that story of young doc physician Wagner, I said to myself, I want that. I want to see Jesus in every line of Scripture. I want, I want to be drawn to the uplifted Savior. Box number two, I want to pray through for the Holy Spirit until God answers our prayers. I just, I, hey, look at Dwight, I'll stay with you. I'll pray through with you. Let's pray through together. Oh, num box number three, I would like to join with others in this united prayer. We've got uh, a couple grow groups that are meeting in House of Prayer. Got 45 people plus another five came last week. It was about 50 uh, walk-ins in the youth chapel. If you want to come this Wednesday night in the youth chapel through those double doors and you want to join United Prayer for Jesus' promised gift, come and join us, 7 o'clock, the youth chapel. Here's a, here's a fourth box. I would like to begin planning for baptism. What's the point of Jesus being lifted up to the world and he's not lifted up in my life? I don't know why I've been putting this off, but I want to follow Jesus now in baptism. If you haven't been baptized yet, I can't think of a better way to end the school year sometime before the semester ends with you. Maybe you're not even a student. Just, I can't think of a better way to celebrate spring than the new life that comes in Christ. There, there are three dates there. Circle one of those dates. Hey, this date would really work for me. Just put a circle around it. No, no, actually none of those work, but here's a date I'd like to ask for. If you put an email address, we'll be in touch with you. Nobody's going to baptize you next Sabbath. You take all the time you need, but why not let Jesus be lifted up? Radical young disciple or not so young, why not? Why not? Let's pray. Dear God, in your great mercy, you sent a most precious message 
about our Savior Jesus. In our hearts, everything within us longs to respond. Paradigm shift, radical paradigm shift. Do it with us. A new way to live an old life in tandem with Christ our Lord. Bless this campus, dear Father. We love this place. If you could do this 127 years ago, couldn't you do it again? Please. The time is ripe and ready, and so are we. Have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. May I take an extra moment with you and let you know how grateful I am that you joined us in worship today. I have from viewers like you across the nation and literally around the world, and I'm thankful. If you'd like to explore further what we've just shared, I hope you'll visit us at our website. It's an easy one to remember, www.pmchurch.tv. We're the Pioneer Memorial Church here on the campus of Andrews University. So that's www.pmchurch.tv. Click onto that website and you'll be able to listen to a podcast of this material. You can download the presentation. You can print off the study guide. You may have a special prayer need that you wish to share with our prayer partners. Or you may wish to partner with us through a personal donation to help reach this generation with the everlasting good news of Christ. If you'd rather talk with someone, call one of our friendly operators. Here's the toll-free number, 877, and then the two words, His Will. 877-HIS-WILL. In the meantime, may the grace and peace of Jesus be yours every step of this adventurous way.